0: or send an email to openline at eWTN.com.
1: A tremendous Friday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. If you'd like to be part of the program, Colin is back. Voice intact. <laughs> Deacon Harold is taking a nap this week since Colin has recovered. And if you would like to be part of the program, pick up the phone and give us a call at 833 833- 288-EWTN, that's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still like to hear from you. That number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. You can always send us an email. That email address is openline.com at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams. Charles Beery is our celebrity producer today. Our call screener is Matt Dubensky and Jeff Burson, magnificent person, handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, the aforementioned Vice President of Theology here at EWTN, Mr. Colin Donovan, how are you?
2: Well, it's good to be back, although the deacon filled in admirably, uh, as he's done for me a number of other times in the past last week, and happy he was able to do it.
1: Beautiful. Always good to be live, if we can be live, for you, our phone callers. So grab one of these open lines at 833-288-EWTN. You know, Colin, uh, just in general terms, uh, when we talk about theology, a lot of people uh, probably more so outside of the Catholic ranks within Christianity, mm-hmm. but also within the Catholic ranks of Christianity as well, you know, there are people who really kind of have the notion, not entirely incorrectly, that you know their relationship with Jesus and how they respond to the Gospel message is really the primary concern that they should be focused on, and that's not incorrect. But True. we are called, all, each one of us, by virtue of our baptism, to be evangelists. And we're not all wired the same. And the things that, that picket me internally are not necessarily going to be the things that picket you internally. And I think that that very dynamic that I just described is one of the reasons that a sound understanding of theology is very important because you never know what the issue is that's holding somebody
2: back right and I think if you're going to do any conversations with relatives with family with colleagues with friends or with people you just encounter who you know bring out oh you're Catholic well what about this or what about that and I've had that many times during my life as I'm sure you have as well and you're sort of put on the spot how to answer it's good to have a good formation um it, it It's not necessary, as you noted, in this sense, and that is, is our faith in God as primary, and those who love our Lord, love the Church, they accept everything the Church teaches, they don't try to overthink it or cogitate about it to, you know, that's, that's all that matters to them, and that feeds their devotional life and their relationship with the Lord they're going to have a different way of dealing with other people. Maybe they'll be the ones whose example means more than the words that we can talk spew out on our call-in shows and so on in answer to questions. But for the person who does have the opportunity and the possibility of some formation, a good theological background is important because, A... It's what the Church teaches we're called to believe. We're not called to believe theology. We're called to believe what the Church teaches. And on that, an authoritative voice is, for example, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the ordinary papal teaching going down through time. There's the extraordinary teaching, of course, when the the Church, either in a council or a pope, makes uh, some declaration. But that ordinary teaching, these things are that perdure from papacy to papacy to papacy that represent what has been held always and everywhere by the church. Those are easy enough to discern if you're listening and paying attention. Beyond that is the explanation. Theology is faith-seeking understanding. And so the explanation is important if you have a person who has a doubt and you want to sort of disabuse them of the reasonableness of their doubt. Or it's inconsistency with the faith, because the, both of those things can be at play. It may be inconsistent with the faith on a black-and-white kind of way, or simply not a reasonable position to take. And so th- in both of those situations, the approach will be different, and you need a bit of formation to make the, r- the distinctions. Every Catholic is going to be called upon to do that, even if it's only at the level of their catechetical preparation Maybe they had some theology in high school and college. Maybe they maybe they did some uh, graduate uh, studies in it or something like that. Everybody's preparation is going to be different. Everybody's, you know, how far along they went in that is going to be different. But there's always, of course, the reading you can do as life goes on. There's obviously through programming you can learn a great deal. So that formation is continuing, and I think this is an advantage the modern age has given Catholics, that previous generations did not have this idea of an ongoing adult formation, which allows you to give to others a reason for your hope, as Scripture puts it. And I think that's a tremendous blessing of being in the day we live, uh, even though there are many reasons why this is not a very blessed day in, in many respects. But that's certainly one of the blessings of being alive here and now today.
1: And the fact of the matter is that there's no greater way to um, really embrace the truths of the faith ourselves and to gain deeper understanding of those truths than to try to explain to somebody else.
2: Right, and I think teachers have already always known that. You know, you study in college, maybe you do some understudying as a teacher, and then you get out and you have to explain to others. That is a great way to compound it. And the other element of this is I think of it always. I mean, is.
1: I'm sure you have grown spiritually in spite of all of your academic oh, endeavors. Oh, absolutely. Just by doing this radio show.
2: By doing the radio show when I was teaching at Aquinas College in Nashville in circumstances where I taught cate- catechetically. In uh, all of these situations, you're 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 forced to form ideas with clarity and that's what's most important in those situations and i think that's that's an important important thing to do so maybe the first few times you do this you're going to stumble maybe you just makes you think well i got to go back and read a little bit more on that cuz i didn't explain it well because i didn't understand it well myself and that's something you can do and it's not like you have to do it all today it's as you encounter these issues inform yourself get out the catechism. Look and see what you didn't understand and try to correct what you may have misspoken or spoken adequately to others about the faith. That way, the next time the same thing comes up, you'll be able to do a better job. And of course, there'll be something else that comes up. And so we get into a lifelong process of learning and deepening our faith, and all of those things will help deepen the virtue of faith in us by giving it more and more of a rational and logic and undergirding
1: how much would all of your academic background and your experiential apologetics background be worth if you didn't have a prayer life
2: not much uh the best theology is done on its knees as many have said i think pope benedict said that and but but many others before him uh and that's that's always true because the element of theology which will be missed in the operation of any of the virtues is the gift of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit takes our own natural virtue, improves it, and perfects it. That's his role, St. Thomas teaches us, to perfect science and understanding in these different, uh, the, the different exercises of our intellect. And so that's done in prayer. That's done when we open our hearts, when we're, we say the rosary and we're trying to get deeper into the mystery, or we're reading the sacred scriptures prayerfully and we're trying to understand it. In these moments, the Holy Spirit is going to be operating in us because we're, we're open and docile to his operations, more so than we're actively teaching and, and doing things which build us up purely on a, on a human intellectual level.
1: So study, and if you can't find the answer that you're looking for, what do you do? You call open line. There you go. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Straight ahead, we'll talk to Vanessa in New Orleans, Catherine in Cleveland, and we've got plenty of time for your calls as well. Just pick up the phone and give us a call. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 288 3986 if you're outside the United States and Canada we'd still love to get you in the queue that number is 1 205 271 2985 and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1 205 271 2985 it's EWTN's open line Friday with our very own Vice President of Theology, Colin Donovan.
0: This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call one 271 2985 or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com.
1: Brand spanking new book hot off the presses for July from EWTN Publishing, The Roots of a Christian Civilization. First Principles of a Just and Ordered Society by our own Father Brian Mullady. The Roots of a Christian Civilization is your compendium on Catholic Social Teachings. In these incisive pages, Father Milady answers the question, should law implement morality or not? Father provides you with a compendium of accessible answers to a range of questions on spiritual and moral theology. You'll learn about the uniqueness of the individual because of the spiritual soul and how society must be governed by virtues such as prudence, justice, and charity. You'll also find out how to live your life in Christ regardless of your vocation to attain personal fulfillment, and much, much more, The Roots of a Christian Civilization, First Principles of a Just and Ordered Society by Father Brian Milady, a new book available at EWTN Publishing. You can purchase it at EWTNRC.com, by Catholic shop, EWTNRC.com. To the phones we go. First up today is Vanessa, a first-time caller in New Orleans, Louisiana, listening on Catholic Community Radio. Vanessa, you're on with Colin Donovan.
3: Good afternoon, gentlemen. Um, I would like to know what the requirements and qualifications are for becoming a canon lawyer, and is there a process? Is there a canon law school? Is there a canon bar exam you have to pass? Mm -hmm. And what kinds of employment opportunities there are for canon lawyers?
2: Sure. Yeah, uh, canon law is one of the sacred sciences. It's governed by the Holy See, in other words, that Rome makes the uh, regulations which concern it, and they're not much different than the regulations from the theological di- di- disciplines. Uh, you can speak of uh, sacred scripture, you can speak of canon law, and you can speak of sacred theology. And so the church has two primary degrees in the, in that uh, in that respect. The licentiate in sacred scripture is the SSL. The uh, licentiate in canon law you're, uh, uh, Eurus Canonica is the JCL, and in theology, it's the STL, which is what I have. For this, it's a program that is done in pontifical faculties, of which there are a number around uh, the world. Uh, There there are at least two in Rome. I think there may be more than that at the University of the Holy Cross uh, and Pontifical University and also at the Angelicum. I think the others, like the Gregorian, also... Uh, have that, and maybe some of the others. And so this is usually that you must already have completed the basic theology. The basic theology in the norms of the Holy See is two years of philosophy and four years of theology. So once you've completed that and you've got a bachelor's degree, you can apply for the license programs. And so that's a pretty heavy, uh, you know, entry, entry path to get into uh, canon law. And so that can be acquired, achieved in many ways. You can go to uh, a Roman school and do six years uh, to get that uh, bachelor's degree. Uh, you can do it as I did, is get an undergraduate theology degree with the- philosophical preparation in the case of four years. And uh, apparently the description of the studies, uh, they felt I was entitled to, or permitted to enter into the licentiate program. So you could get an undergraduate theology degree, say in the United States or someplace, but whether or not that would be be up to the particular pontifical faculty you apply to. You have to meet the norms, and they have to be satisfied that you meet the norms, even though it's a non-standard route. The standard route would be through one of the pontifical universities in the United States there are uh, there is Catholic University of America has pontifical faculties in Canada Uh, there are a number St. Paul's I believe is where uh, has a very substantial canon law program so there are way ways to do it but like I said to get to do the two years to get at the minimum of a license as opposed to the doctorate which was then a further study uh, and principally writing a dissertation you will need that theological preparation, which Rome considers to be adequate at six six years of philosophy and theology, but which they will sometimes accept less if it's, you know, especially, um, you know, they consider the qualifications are sufficient. So, it's not an easy path. Now, uh, canon lawyers are uh, employed, obviously, by the Holy See itself. They're employed by every diocese in the United States because they're intimately involved in the uh, the both diocesan operations which require canonical advice, but also uh, especially in tribunals such as a, a marriage tribunal, uh, those processes. So there's a good deal of, of, of work at that level. Also, there could be teaching, uh, which is true of almost discipline. Any discipline, you could end up as a teacher. Uh, so it's not an easy path to get into, and the opportunities for work are primarily with the church.
1: And and would is it fair to say that not exclusively, but more times than not, people who would seek those uh, particular certificates would do so at the behest of their bishop or...
2: Right. For for clerical, for people. Now, if you were in lay people, and I knew lay people in Rome, and there are people in the Church who obviously uh, lay people who have canon law degrees, uh, they can have... an uh, perhaps a, a route to the priesthood, which they interrupted for some reason. They discerned that wasn't their vocation, but they had the basic preparation. Or they simply went to a Roman school or another school that had an undergraduate pontifical uh, theology degree program, and they completed the course there as a paying customer, uh, as normally would be the case. Then, of course, there are, there are possible uh, work. For instance, um, uh, years ago, it, it's... Doesn't have such a, a big operating uh, uh, footprint as it were, but the St. Joseph's Foundation, which did uh, canon, canon law assistance to Catholics in need, there are uh, some others I believe in the United States which would be probably laymen who uh, who have undertaken that but primarily I would say the overwhelming number of canon law positions are in dioceses and uh, in Rome. How's that, Vanessa?
3: Oh, that's terrific. Thank you yeah. so
1: much. You're very welcome. We appreciate it. And, the and Bishop's call. Conferences.
2: Yep. I forgot to yep. mention
1: that one, too. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Give us a call on this Friday edition of Open Line, 833-288-3986. Next up is Catherine. She is in Cleveland, Ohio, listening on The Rock today. Catherine, you are on with Colin Donovan. Yeah, th- th- thank-, thank you. I, I
3: want to know about the canonization, you know, where it was supposed to the Pope, the South, of Russia, uh, and Russia only, she did not come out for the provision of the country. And this has never, never been done correctly. But John Paul did it, did it. But, but, you know, he offered Russia and the world. And and, and was not done correctly then. So you have to, um, a lady wanted Russia and Russia only. You cannot. Add anything onto it. If you add the world onto it, it mm-hmm. that's why it wasn't done right. You couldn't. You have to look southwards. Uh, and, and Father Gruner, I read about about him. He said in the year two thousand, he went to uh, he had to talk to twenty bishops and priests in South America. They did not know the full story uh, about the about the promise, and they this they never did it. Their bishops proven. In South America, they never did it. The
2: of John Paul did
1: it. Because so, what about this whole business of consecrating yeah. Russia to Our Lady's Immaculate Heart?
2: Okay. One, one starting position for me uh, as a theologian and as a Catholic is that what the church teaches. Just as the interpreter of public revelation is the magisterian. The interpreter of private revelation is the magisterium in other words when a mystic claims to have uh, uh, to have seen have our Lord appear maybe they lived a long life they had these mystical writings and so on uh, the how they get to be approved and what gives them credibility and truthfulness is the fact that the church after a thorough study and investigation uh, approves that particular mystic usually in the process of canonization and so uh take sister Lucia she will uh, sort of an extraordinary and a mixed case of this but let's say she were only had private revelation an example of this would be the actual request of the of the consecration in 1929 remember in 1917 she it wasn't the request it was her saying i will come to ask this the actual request is the text of 1929, when Mary actually came to ask then Sister Lucia. That's not part of the Fatima event, except in the sense that this is the one of the apparitions of Fatima.
1: Fulfillment of the promise. The
2: fulfillment of the promise. So that doesn't make it any less true. But if you're going to talk about the wording, then you want to know what the wording is. And so the wording ends from June 13th, 1929. So this is not July 13th, 1917, but when she actually appeared to uh, Sister Lucia was asking for the consecration of Russia to her immaculate heart, promising to conversion through this means and the hindering of the propagation of its errors. So it's true consecration of Russia. She mentioned nobody else. The promise is that if this will be done, that Russia will be converted and the heirs will be pro- not be propagated. What most people don't realize is that less than two years later, Our Lady was complaining, why has this not been done? Why has this not been done? And we know that it was in the early 1930s that the heirs propagated out of Russia through Germany and into Italy. And anybody who's watched our program, Wolf and Sheep's Clothing, knows how that pathway, and we know that by the 1930s, it was already infecting academics and others in the United States. There was a flourishing Communist Party now in the United States. The heirs had been propagated. It was not done. She's not quite correct. It was not done, as Our Lady asked, and it would have been done in 30 or 31. Then we would not have seen all the trouble which Russia would make and actually spread her heirs. So they were spread. That's a take for granted. Now, what was the purpose of the Fatima apparition? Our Lady tells us back in 1917. Our Lord wishes to establish devotion to my God, she says, God wishes to establish devotion to my Immaculate Heart alongside devotion to his own. That's the purpose. The consecration is not an end in itself. As if man only looking to his own material, political, and military, and economic, and natural goods... It should be satisfied by God promising and fulfilling those. But the spiritual goal was that we would demonstrate to the world the power of the Immaculate Heart. And that's where we'll pick up after the break.
1: 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan.
0: This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.
1: 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It is a free telephone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. And you know what I'm going to do, Colin? What's that? I'm going to tell you something about one of our great affiliates, if I can find my paper here. There you go. You found it. Um, Yes, but congratulations are going out to another member of the EWTN radio family. WWGL 97.9 FM in Steubenville, Ohio is celebrating eight years with EWTN. Congratulations to the friends at Community of God's Love from all of us here at EWTN radio. And we're talking with Catherine, and uh, we're talking with Catherine about uh, why we have obstinately refused to consecrate Russia and Russia only to Our Lady's Immaculate Heart.
2: Right. And the main point I made in the, before the break was that uh, already two years after the actual request was made of Sister Lucia in 1929, uh, having only previewed that request in 1917, our, our Lady was complaining that it had not been done. And we also know historically that already communism was out of the bag in Europe and very soon in the United States. And, of course, by the late 30s and into the war era in the 50s, uh, it was ran pretty freely So really, freely on, on country.
1: some level, the issue has been metaphysically decided at this
2: point. Well, but not really, because again, if we keep our mind fixed on what the intention was, the finality, if you will, you speak philosophically of causes here. The instrumental cause was the consecration in order to get the church to put devotion to her Immaculate Heart on this level, that we would see it in this way, and we would use consecration uh, then as a means, and we would make this, draw this, relationship with Our Lady that leads us to Our Lord, going all the way back to the Montfort. This has been building over centuries. And so, if that's the purpose, how else, how does this now come about? What other things came about? Well, you could say already by 31 or two, the Fatima request, or the at this point the Tui request, had not been satisfied. Our Lord appears to a mystic in Portugal, Alexandrina de Costa, and he asked for the consecration of the world to the Immaculate Heart. Pope Pius, the, the, she has, or at least her bishop, sends a letter to the Pope, and in 1942, the Pope would consecrate the world to the Immaculate Heart as World War II was Ramping up, the Allies were being pushed off of continents, getting in a lot of trouble, and after the consecration was made in December of 42, the tide began to turn. You saw the effect of the consecration of the world to the Immaculate Heart. So you could see that here is a change in the, you know, of order from just the salvation of one nation, but the salvation of many nations in the midst of this great war. And in 1942, then, Sister Lucia would also write the Pope, and she would say this, and that is, um, oh, in 19, 19, 1940, rather, she would write this to him that our Lord himself, not Our Lady, our Lord asked. For the pope to consecrate the world of the immaculate heart with a special mention for russia and orders that all an order that all the bishops of the world do the same in union with your ho- your holiness so in other words the, a collegial act and so that was that became part of it but most of the evidence points to the request of uh, alexandrina da costa as being the one that he acted upon rather than on the fatima request so then, we, time going on, we're getting into uh, into the fifties, and what Pius the twelfth did is he was convinced by uh, he was convinced that the consecration of Russia was needed. He did it by himself. Remember what was going on here: the U.S. had the atomic bomb, the U.S. had the hydrogen bomb, and then suddenly, within a short period of time, because of thes- theft of uh, of secrets russia also had these two bombs so the world was on a precipice already by the early 50s and he consecrated russia to the immaculate heart so all of these things have an effect if the goal was to get the church to take seriously the idea of consecration to show the relationship between the two hearts the sacred hearts that of mary and of our lord then this has been increasing and building within the church from the 30s and 40s. It took a new impetus with the 1984 consecration, in which Russia was spoken of indirectly, or as, uh, as, as a friend of mine says, in pectori. In other words, in the heart. The Pope can nominate cardinals in pectori and nobody else knows. He can do that, and it's a, because he wills it, it's done. This would be a way, perhaps, to understanding the 1984 consecration because there was a good deal of resistance to actually mentioning Russia. The Cold War was virtually, on, was virtually hot already in the early 80s. So not to mention it had some prudential sense, or at least it did to some. But he, those nations still awaiting consecration, as he called it. But our Lord accepted that, and on the basis of that acceptance, the wall fell. Now, that does not satisfy what was the intention in 1929, unfulfilled in 1931. But the finality, that consecration and devotion to the Immaculate Heart and giving it this great weight that history can be intervened in by Our Lady alongside the heart of her Son, that is satisfied, that is demonstrated. And today in the church, we find that popes and bishops quite readily use the means of consecration of nations and dioceses. Priests do in their parishes. Uh, and we see also the, the Pope did with regard to the war in Russia and the Ukraine. So we have to be patient. We have to be patient also for this reason, as I alluded to at the very beginning the church is the interpreter of, of these things, not me. Not Father Gruner, not anybody else, not bishops in Brazil or wherever in South America who didn't make it because they thought it was phony. None of that matters because the church is the one who stands before God with the authority of Christ and makes that interpretation because it has the charism. So I. I think we continue to use consecration and the time may come to actually use it with respect to Russia in other circumstances. But the freedom granted to the bloc nations in 1984 through 1989 is nothing to sniff at and say, not done. The Pope didn't do it. He blew it. This accuses Sister Lucia. This accuses the Pope of lying about the fact that she was told God accepted it. Now, Maybe not in the way that it would have been done in the 1930s. Maybe not turning Russians into Roman Catholics, as some people would think. That, too, will come someday, because the Lord promises the unity of the the faithful, that the Jews may be envious and also come into the church. That will come someday. But that it served the purpose that Our Lady announced for the whole Fatima uh, apparitions, that the lord desires that we recognize her heart next to his because there is this mystical spousal relationship of mother and son relationship to the incarnation with relationship to the redemption with relationship to the outpouring of the holy spirit with the relationship to the renewal of the church and the renewal of the world whenever god deigns that to happen that's how it will come about and we go forward Uh, with this attitude, and we don't get hung up on, you know, somebody's theory of what the church didn't do and popes didn't do in a timely manner. Sister Lucy, in her writings, clearly makes that she didn't worry about that at all, because God, in making it, knew exactly what would happen, and he knew how the church would respond, and maybe the failure prompted the church to be more attentive to it uh, after the fact, and I think we see the value of it, um, and we'll leave to the future and God's providence what the ultimate value will be, whether it's with respect to Russia and the Ukraine or with respect to, you know, in, any other uh, political or military or economic or pandemic circumstance we may find ourselves in.
1: A couple of open lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Mike is in Peru, Illinois listening on Spirit of God Radio. Mike you are on with Colin Donovan.
3: My question is, what is the Didache? Mm-hmm.
2: Okay, that's it. Okay, I guess I could answer that. Uh, it means teaching. We use the word in English didactic. Somebody is, gets up there and gets very uh, uh, teachy, and they use big words and so on, like uh, I'm probably prone to do. That's didactic. Uh, the Didache is the teaching of the Twelve Apostles it is said we don't have any evidence for this other than a, an early tradition which isn't on the level of the tradition regarding the canonicity of the bible or anything like that but uh, that the, this is uh, derived from the apostles you know probably somebody writing down the teaching so it has great value in the church there was a time when it w- and there was a time when it was read in the churches as if it were a book of scripture but the canon did not ultimately conclude it. But it is a great resource to source. Some dated, it's dated anywhere between about 80 A.D. and 120 A.D. So it's first century, along with the letters of uh, Clement of Rome, uh, early first century would be Ignatius of, uh, of Antioch and uh, Polycarp and some of the other and early apostolic yeah. fathers. And
1: it's oft-referenced in...
2: And it's oft-referenced by many, many others yeah. right, in academic work. So that's the dedicate, And you'll see it referenced probably in footnotes in the Catechism and elsewhere.
1: Thanks, Mike. We appreciate the call. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Um, Selina says, In the New Testament, Paul talks about admonishing the sinner, How can we do that without making people angry? What is the right time to do this?
2: That's a general duty, a duty of charity. Prudence is another virtue besides charity, and they're not in opposition to each other. That means to know who we're talking to, to know what will Impress them, get their intention, whatever it is you're trying to accomplish. Reveal to them the error of their ways. And so fraternal correction is something that is very often done badly because people don't take those kinds of factors into account. You know, they just, you know, say, Bill, you're on the road to hell. You keep doing that. Well, Bill's not going to be impressed with that. But if you know, you know, if you know, Maybe it would be a simple, what do you think your mother would think if she were still alive and she saw you? We can find ways, if we know people and we know about them, we will find ways to maybe open a little crack that the next time we talk to them, we might say something more fruitfully. That actually gets, and then to say, well, you know, not only would your mother be ashamed, but, you know, our God would be ashamed. And here's why. Why that behavior is offensive? You've got to have a basis to reach the person. If you're just throwing things at, that's that's our ego often that's that's involved in that. Um, so we're just we want to we want to we want to get it off our chest. Maybe it's easier to get it off than to keep it in and look for the opportunity. That's the easy path. Uh, we're creatures of convenience, and that's the most convenient way. But you really need to think about the person you want to educate, how what you would tell them would be received, how best to open a door that it will be received, and these other kinds of circumstantial questions. Taken just by itself, admonish the sinner sinner, would suggest that, well, let's get some picket signs and we'll walk up and back and forth in front of the person's house. That would be a collective way of doing it going and doing it to their face without any thought of whether that has any other, but I've, now I've done it, I've admonished the sinner, that also would not be a, a proper way of doing it. So look at the prudential and the circumstantial elements and pick the best time and the best way to reach that particular person.
1: And you don't necessarily have to make it sound like you're talking about them.
2: No, you no. You just
1: be talking about, I mean, I could say, you know, I, I just read this article. It's uh, it's opened my eyes. I've never seen this before. Colin, I don't know if you've seen anything like this, but it's it's a a, a very obscure little passage in Scripture that says, if you wear plaid shirts on Fridays, <laughs> you'll be condemned. I, I never saw that before. <laughs> <That's>,
2: <laughs> you'll, we'll have to talk about that <laughs> afterwards. I know what you're saying, Jack, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. So, but I'm not offended.
1: Yeah. <laughs> See? Mission accomplished. (laughs) Hopefully that's helpful to Selena as well. Uh, Michael P. is watching us on YouTube, and he wants to know, should chaplains of of Catholic fraternal organizations be appointed by the lay leader of the organization or by the bishop of a diocese?
2: Normally, to be in office, a chaplaincy is something that the bishop does. So, you know, it depends on how an issue you've got. if you've got a little group of lay people that meet in the parish and you want your pastor or father you know james from across town i don't think we're talking big canonical issues here but if you have a major organization that's a public association of the faithful or in some way canonically erected or or that you have an obligation to to uh, approach the bishop and and I don't know how this is done. I'm not in diocesan staffs, but I would bet that the bishop would be interested in you bringing forth a person rather than having him or his staff rack their minds who would be. You bring forth somebody that he would say yea or nay to rather than lay it upon him to appoint a chaplain. It may be as easy as, well, the pastor of a parish you meet in uh, do it or something like that. Uh, and in fact, any organization in any parish is in some sense under the pastor. So that's, you know, he's allowed you in. He's allowing you to do stuff there. Um, so he has certain certain rights in that respect. So um, I, I think that's the way to look at it. It depends on how serious an effort an organization it is, whether it would need something official or not, I think.
1: Join us for the Encore of the World Over on Saturday night at 10 p.m. Eastern Time, and you can check it out again Sunday afternoon at 3 a.m. Eastern Time. That's the Encore of the World Over right here on EWTN Radio. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Frank wants to know, are there any ways of knowing if someone is demonically possessed
2: well the church has a way of knowing it has criteria because this is an interesting relationship and as you look at our world around us we often say "Oh, such-and-such a person is possessed i can think of a number of public figures that is has that regularly said about them there it's hard to know whether mental illness is the cause, in other words, something organic, something chemi- chemically, chemistry in the brain, or whether it actually is demonic. Because the demonic is sort of parallels mental illness. And this is why. In mental illness, there is a disintegration of the person's faculties. their self-control, their will, uh, you think of the more obvious ones, schizophrenia and different things where you, there's clearly something and there's an organic roots for, for those and there's chemical reasons why that happens. People uh, using medications, some of these things, they warn you in down in the small print what can happen because systems get upset. So you have things which sort of represent this ind- disintegration in the me- field of mental illness, psychiatry, psychology deals with and, and neurology obviously as well. Parallel to that, you have people who some of the same kinds of behaviors and attitude and representing themselves that would show a disintegration of their personality, but from a different purpose. And the only way to distinguish the two is the presence of non-human phenomena related to that, what the church calls preternatural phenomena. In other words, the use of powers and abilities that are beyond the human. Somebody tosses somebody effortly, effortlessly effortlessly, across the room. Somebody speaks in foreign languages that they do not, they've never known Latin, and they begin, you know, talking to their uh, you know priest who comes to visit them to check them out on this score begins conversing them in latin and maybe even correcting the priest's latin You hears you hear stories uh, about that or maybe describing events that took place that they didn't had no knowledge of that happened far away among people that they know but they have no knowledge about it until somebody goes and checks and say yeah that's exactly what happened how did you know So these things manifest the presence of uh, the demonic spirit, and the Church looks for those. And it waits, basically, for the psychologists and the psychiatrists to say, I have no medical explanation or psychological explanation for this behavior and actions. On the basis, then, of the preternatural things, a bishop can assign an exorcist to do it. So that's, that's the distinction. Uh, And this is sometimes represented in movies. It's represented in the movie The Exorcist, sort of the original movie of this genre, Uh, at least the original one that isn't some wacky, uh, uh, lacking uh, facts-based horror picture. Uh, The Exorcist does a pretty good job of showing what the Church goes through to make that determination, in part because it's based on a real case, although some of the facts are changed, Uh, for the sake it was a girl it was a boy not a girl it took place in St. Louis not in DC although it started in DC with the aunt of the boy getting him involved in using the Ouija board and other things such as portrayed in the movie Uh, so the introduction to the occult came through her and then he went home and began to manifest the phenomena
1: We head next to Avignon, France. Bernadette is watching us on Skype today. Bernadette, welcome to the program. You're on with Colin.
3: Hi, Colin. How are you?
2: I'm pretty good. What's your question today over there in France?
3: Well, it's about about, uh, when the book of Genesis was written, because I've got this nephew who is um, being really... um, drawn towards the um, extraordinary right and the constant criticism of Pope Francis and all that. And he's mm-hmm. telling me, well, the sacrament of marriage was added in the uh, Middle Ages, and uh, the book of Genesis was not written in, um, uh, in one swoop. It was written in installments, and they added the, um, the sacrament of marriage later. And I don't know how to tell him, you know, I don't have the references to tell him when exactly it was written, so I, w- I thought I was going to call you. <laughs>
2: Yeah, well, that, that that seems like he's going the other direction from the more traditional uh, Catholic viewpoint. Um, the book of Genesis, as we know, it seems likely, and of course all of this is scholarship done at a distance by, by Jews and Christians alike trying to figure out uh, how it was. But like most ancient societies, much of the knowledge was passed on orally, and this was also probably the case with the, uh, with the five books of Moses, that there was an oral tradition before there was a written tradition. The oral tradition, uh, going back to Moses, would put it about 1300 B.C. The written tradition seems to be after the Babylonian exile, when they would write down the things that um that they wanted preserved because now they understood or maybe it was during the babylonian exile even they understood that th- everything that they valued religiously could be lost by these kinds of uh persecutions, such as the babylonians uh, did by destroying jerusalem so probably about the eighth century bc it began to be written down The streams of oral traditions, theologians debate on that. Biblical scholars do. It's called textual criticism. It doesn't really matter to the Christian or the Catholic, at least to the Catholic, because the Church tells us these books, these writings are canonical. That's the datum that we need to know. How they got to be together and how they got in this form, such as has existed for well over 2,000 years, as the Dead Sea Scrolls have shown, how they got there is not material to the question of our obligation to the text and so the text of that is what is is canonical so even in the modern day scholarship there's the there's the talk of the Yahwist tradition and the priestly tradition some of that is based on a reference to the book of the law being found in 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 the temple This is believed perhaps to be at least part of the book of Deuteronomy, had been written down, and that it was discovered, uh, uh, I think, uh, before the exile even. So we don't exactly sure how it all came together. We only know that on the authority of Christ through the Church, we take that text as given to us by the Church as the canonical text. The rest is really not not, uh, terribly important. The Church's theory of inspiration is that God uses the human individuals who wrote things down or spoke it, as in the case of an oral tradition or the prophetic, the prophets who didn't write, they spoke. He takes that, and that which is identified as canonical then is understood not just to be the human author's intention. That's important. That's called the literal sense in writing down this. Why did he write down this particular things, all these things? The divine intention. What is the spiritual purpose? So, as Pope John Paul II showed with regard to the early books of Genesis, there is a tremendous amount of theological data regarding man and the relationships of man in that text. This is what comes from the Church and through the Church. The text itself, we can't place when it was written down or who exactly wrote it. We only know that Through God's providence, the Jewish people kept it intact for over a millennia probably in some form, either orally and in writing, both for a while, and that we have it as a consequence of their diligence in doing that.
1: On behalf of our host, Colin Donovan, our producer, Charles Beery, call screener, Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks for another great week of EWTN's Open Line. Back at it again on Monday with Father Trujillo. Until then, God bless.